please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. Finally made it to Ephesians chapter 5. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Uh, If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. And so right over at the welcome table, we have uh, these story ESV Bibles that are yours to take. Just grab that at any time. That's our gift to you. We love God's word. We love how the Lord has revealed himself and his promises and his love towards us in Christ through it. And so we want to make that available to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me ask you this. Who would people say that you are most like? Well, she is so much like her mother. He's the spitting image of his dad. Everybody can just tell that he really, really wants to be like Mike. Who do you strive to emulate? And what is it about them that you seek to reflect? Maybe it's fashion sense. You know, I just love her fashion sense, and I want to try to dress like her. Or he's so successful, I wonder if he could give me tips on how I can improve my business. Or, or I want to be in with this group of people, and so I realize that I need to start playing the part. I need to start dressing like them and acting like them. Or maybe you look at someone else and you say, everybody just seems to love him or her. I wish they would love me that way. And so I seek to emulate or mimic them. Or maybe you're here and you're the kind of person that you long to be out front. You want people to imitate you, right? And so you want them to sing your songs. You want them to look and act like you. You want to be the teacher. You want to be the instructor. You want to be the model by which they live. Who is it that you imitate? What are you most like? You know, if imitation really is the most sincere form of flattery, then behind every act of imitation is an act of worship. Behind every act of imitation is an expression of praise or adoration. It's an act of gratitude that seeks to glorify some aspect of another. Behind every act of imitation is an expression of love, either love towards a person or love towards a particular aspect of another. I want to be represented. I want to be characterized by that thing which I love. So maybe it's like, well, I love my grandma and I want to be just like her. Or maybe I take on the practices, the attitudes, the ideas, and the image of another because I love what those things have gotten that person. I love success, so I seek to learn from and imitate those who are successful. I love the praise of men, and so I strive to live like those who are being celebrated. I love notoriety in some particular way, and so in a twist of irony, I jump on the bandwagon and put on the uniform and imitate those who are trying to seek notoriety in that exact same way. I want to be a skater. I want to be a jock. I'm going gothic. Or perhaps the epitome of irony in the pursuit of notoriety, I am a hipster. In most cases of imitation, we are trying to be something that we're not. We may love that person or some attribute that we believe that that person represents. And so as an expression of our love, we seek to imitate what we love. This morning in in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we're talking about imitation, imitation that flows out of love. 
But the imitation that we're called to in this passage is totally different than the imitation that we see in the world. It's not me seeking by my own strength to be something that I'm not because I love something that I do not have and want to make it mine. That's the imitation of the world. That's faking it. That's being an imitation, a knockoff. It's disingenuous. And I'm doing that to get what I want. No, the imitation that we see from this text is completely the opposite. Where the imitation of the world looks like this. I want, I long for that which I do not have, therefore I imitate. The imitation we see in this text goes like this. Because of the love of God that I have received I've already received everything that I truly long for, and it is so good. Therefore, I imitate. Let me try to explain it by putting these side to side. Love and imitation in the world longs and loves something that it does not have. And so, in an independent, world-centered effort of self-will, I seek to imitate actions, attitudes, ideas, or images in order to attain that attribute or that thing that I love but I do not have. That's what the world does. You see it right there at the top. You do this because you believe that somehow it will improve your life, that you will be better off for doing it. But Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so in the imitation of God, we have already received that which our hearts truly long for. We have it in Christ. It's ours. And it's through God-empowered, spirit-dependent, Christ-centered imitation, we seek not to attain what we do not have, but to give that which we have already received for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, as, I look, as we look at those side by side, I just want to read the text for us one more time to make sure that this sinks in. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, here's why I have taken so long to introduce this text and make these concepts real and apparent and provide this nice little table for you to look at. We're going to be talking about love and imitation, but we cannot think about these things the way the world thinks about them, and we all have this natural tendency to do that. It's just what we kind of do by nature. We can't think of love and and imitation that way because if we do, when we come to this text and we look at it, we will be deceived either into this error that we will be deceived into thinking that God's love is something that I do not have, that I must earn by my own hard work or effort. I imitate in order to gain the love of God or we'll look at those commands and we'll, we'll see, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved and we'll say, and that is impossible. Well, that is unappealing. And we'll resign ourselves to love and imitate things that we think are. Love and imitate that which we think is possible or appealing, the loves and longings of this world. And we will give ourselves over to pursue and imitate them rather 
than him. I want us to avoid both of these errors. And so does God. I want to because God does, right? I'm not first, he is. Um, So before we can look at the two commands that are given in this text, be imitators of God and walk in love, we need to look first at the two reasons that he gives. And in fact, I'm going to spend most of my time just in the reasons Because if we truly grasp those, it will lift our gaze to see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. It will change our desires and our longings so that by God's grace, we will want to live differently. We will understand the commands and why they were given. And we will now want to keep them in ways that we haven't recognized before. And so the main idea that I hope we will see this morning in this text is God's love for life, our lives for love. God's love for life, our lives for love. And to make it really, really easy for us, those are my two points. So first, God's love for life. If you've been with us and we've been walking through Ephesians together, it's been evident that salvation is a work of God through Jesus Christ. It's God's grace alone that leads us to faith. It's God's grace that saves us. It's God's love that produces new and everlasting life in us. You have to understand that Christianity is not like any other religion in the world because in Christianity, it's not about what you do. It's not about your good deeds. It's not about your religious efforts, your your rituals that you perform in order to please or barter with some distant God that's out there in the hopes that you might be able to scratch your way and find him. And Christianity is totally different than it's all about not what you do, but what God has done already for us in Jesus Christ that he has made it possible for us to come to him. Now, I'm half tempted just to rattle off the first two chapters of Ephesians to you, but let me just try to give an overview of God's work for us in salvation from those two chapters. In chapter one, I mean, it starts off right off the bat with the fact that God, we didn't choose God, but God first chose us. And when did he do that? From before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, God chose us. And why did he do that? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. Redemption, the purchase of our salvation from sin, our forgiveness from sin was graciously given through the blood of Christ. We don't earn that. It was given. As a result of God's work in us and for us, we received an eternal heavenly inheritance that we could never even dream of earning or achieving by our own. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who now dwells within us and lives and works within us to change us, to make us more like Christ. It was God who imparted wisdom and knowledge to us. We didn't do that. And he makes it explicit because God is the one who opened the eyes of our hearts. He enlightened the eyes of our hearts so we may know the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us in Christ? And what he's talking about there, when he says this power at work within us is this is the power that raised Christ from the dead. This is the power that exalted Christ over every rule and every authority and every dominion and every power, every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one that is to come. Christ is the ruler over all things. That power that enabled that to happen, that power is working in and through and for us by faith in Jesus Christ. That's God's work. That's not ours. In chapter 2, we learn that God had to do this because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
We followed, we imitated, we, we mimicked the course of this world. We followed, we imitated the devil, and we lived out of the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and of the mind. And as a result, we gladly and willfully made ourselves children of God's wrath, like all of mankind. It's not that our sin made us sick or simply held us back from God. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were justly condemned. You don't save yourself from that. Your religious efforts cannot pay that back. It cannot earn it. God must do it. And by his grace, he did. It was God who made us alive together with Christ. You don't make yourself alive. God must do that. And Paul makes it really explicit in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And so when we think about why we gather together, why, why do we practice the religion of Christianity? Where does that come in? Why do we meet together and sing and practice the Lord's Supper? Why do we seek to perform good deeds if we're not trying to earn our salvation or pay God back? Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. You see, if God has done this work in our hearts and he has called us to repentance and faith, then we are God's handiwork. That together we are God's masterpiece. And the gathering together, the religious rituals, if you will, the the seeking to do good works, it's all us just following these, these good works that he has laid out before us to walk in because he's made us new creations. He's called us to live together. He's he's called us to, to exemplify that to the world through the church. And that's why we meet. That's why we gather. It's not because we're trying to save ourselves. It's because we have been saved. You see, what Ephesians makes clear to us is that it's truth. It's doctrine. It's the gospel that changes our lives. We don't do it. Right belief leads to right living. If we're rightly believing, we will live rightly. Doctrine leads to life. Faith leads to practice. Reason leads to ethic. Indicative leads to imperative. And we cannot get those reversed. We cannot flip them on their heads. It's not as though I can imitate God and suddenly be like God. It's not like I can walk in love by my own effort and God's going to be pleased with that and love me in return. We can't turn them on their heads. Who we are in Christ always comes before what we are called to do. Who we are in Christ then serves as the reason, the fuel, the power, the motivation, the goal of this command that we are to walk in. We have got to get who we are in Christ. It is essential. We're going to think about these commands rightly. So, When we come to chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He is not saying 
Be imitators of God if you want to be beloved children or mimic God as if you were God's children. Imitate him by pretending that you are his beloved child, though you're clearly not. That is not what it's saying. No, this is not a distant comparison. It's a reason. It's a manner. It's a motivation. It's saying if you are in Christ, the beloved son of God, then you are God's beloved child. You see, Christian salvation is more than simply forgiveness. A lot of times we try to just kind of narrow it down to that. If I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, then I won't go to hell and I don't have to feel bad about all the things that I've done. It's more than a distant God going from viewing you as completely intolerable in his eyes to now you're, you're kind of tolerable. Or from going from guilty to pardoned for good behavior. Now in salvation, we go from death to life. We go from condemned enemies under God's wrath to dearly loved, adopted children. Salvation is more than just the judicial act of going from guilty to not guilty. It is relational, that you are adopted into God's loving family. Once you were abandoned, once you were neglected, once you were an orphan, but now you have been adopted in love. You are not an enemy on the opposite side of God's battlefield. Or you are not simply some meager citizen that would never be able or never be capable to stand in the presence of the king. When God saves us, he adopts us as sons and daughters. You are his child. His dearly loved child. You're not simply some black sheep prodigal, good-for-nothing son of an explicative. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved. He loves you. As we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, it was in love that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And this was according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has already blessed us in the beloved. You are his beloved child. God's love for you is not solely dependent or determined by what you do because God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that leads to the second reason we're given To prove God's love grants us new and eternal life. And it's there in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And again, this is more than just a comparison. Paul is not just saying, hey, follow the example of Christ by loving sacrificially like Christ loved. Just pull it up by your bootstraps and get out there and do it. Now go. That's not what he's saying. As if our problem is that we're just unloving people and we just need a good example of what that looks like and here's Jesus to be that for us. 
That's not it at all. No, again, the reason, the manner, the motivation of our love in addition to us being beloved children is the loving sacrifice of Christ for us. That Christ stood in our place. He offered himself as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And so not only does our heavenly father love us, but Christ himself loved us and Christ sacrificed himself for us to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin. Now, you've probably been told, if you've been around Christians for any length of time, that God is love. Probably heard that, right? It's actually from 1 John chapter 4. God is love. But the loving, one true and living God who created everything is also holy. He is without sin. He is pure. He is blameless. God never sins. God can have nothing to do with sin. And so the dilemma that is presented on every single page of scripture, the dilemma that is there in all of our lives as well, is how can a holy and loving God be reconciled to the sinful people that he loves? He is holy. And so he can't just ignore or dismiss sin. Like, eh, I'm not gonna hold it against you, Abel. Just go on with life, it's fine. Sin is rebellion against God. It is rejecting God and trying to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I'm God. Sin is a direct affront to his character, to his name. It's living the opposite of God's nature, his character, his promises and purposes. And so to disobey God is to defame his very character. It's a personal affront against him. And God cannot just dismiss that. He cannot just overlook that and say, yeah, you know what? It doesn't really matter. If he did, he would not be God. And he tells us over and over and over and over again in scripture that he won't. That he will deal with sin. If God didn't deal with our sin, if he didn't actually cover it with something tangible, something real other than just a dismissal, you have to recognize that God would cease to be God. God would not be holy. God would not be blameless. God would not be righteous. God would not be just. God would not be loving. I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine you had a daughter, dearly loved daughter. <clears throat> and she was viciously kidnapped. She was raped, tortured, and murdered. And they caught the man that did it. In the process, the man confessed that he had not only done it to her, but he had done it to dozens of others throughout the nation. All right, he's a serial rapist, a serial killer. You're sitting there in the trial. Man has confessed his guilt before them, and the, and the judge comes to him and he says, Listen, everybody knows you're guilty. We've got all the evidence against you. You've confessed it, you've, you've admitted it on your own. But because I'm a loving judge, I'm just going to look over it. You're free to go. And would that be loving? Would that be loving towards all the victims who died, didn't deserve to? Would it be loving towards the family members and friends of those victims who were there at the trial just in shock because of what the judge just did? We know that that judge would not be a judge for very long, would he? 
Would it be loving towards the people of that community or that state or that nation because this guy's a serial killer that's gone throughout the, the nation committing these crimes over and over again? Would it be loving to that man who committed the crimes? Of basically saying, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you've done. Those things are meaningless. The answer is obvious, no, right? There's nothing loving about it. In order for God to truly be loving, he must deal with sin. He must actually, really deal with it. God is holy and perfect, and we are sinful, right? Maybe you're not a serial rapist or a serial killer, but you are a serial sinner, We've all sinned against him. And so we all deserve his just judgment for our sin. God has every right just to wash his hands of us and walk away from us. That's what he should have done with Adam and Eve. That's what he should have done with the people of Israel over and over again. That's what he should have done with you and me, but he doesn't. Why? Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God made you. God sustains you. God loves you. God made promises to redeem a people for himself and his glory, his nature, his name are dependent upon that. It's because God is loving and holy that he made a way for us to be reconciled through the death of his son. It's through the sacrifice of Christ that we see God's justice and his mercy upheld that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, God established a system of offering sacrifices. And the reason why he did this was so that a holy God could dwell with a sinful people. So he could actually be present with his people. We've been learning this in the Old Testament survey class. So day after day, year after year, his people would offer unblemished animals to be slaughtered in their place as a substitute for their sin. The blood of these bulls and goats would temporarily cover the sins to satisfy God's wrath so that he could be with his people. These sacrifices were then burnt upon the altar. And if God found them sincere, if God found them acceptable, if he found them pleasing, then they were considered to be a fragrant aroma to God, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, or as the King James Version so poetically puts it, a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. And so day after day, year after year, these sacrifices were offered to cover the sins of God's people to satisfy his wrath for their sins so that his presence could be with them and not destroy them because he's a holy God. These sacrifices were necessary if a holy God was to dwell with his people, to lovingly lead, to provide for, and to protect them. You could not be, I'm sorry, God could not be present with his people to display his love towards them if sacrifices were not offered for sin. 
But what was also abundantly clear throughout every page of Scripture as you work your way through the Old Testament into the New is that these sacrifices could not truly take away sin. They could not change people's hearts. The heart is a factory of idols, as John Calvin says, and he gets that from Ezekiel 14. Meaning that we'll just keep sinning over and over and over again because we have this desire to, we have this proclivity to. And so this sacrificial system is like giving painkillers to cancer patients. It'll reduce suffering. It'll help patients to cope so that they can fight and maybe even extend their lives by days or weeks or even months, but the painkillers cannot remove the cancer that's eating away at their bodies. To kill the cancer, you must remove the tumor. And so to kill sin, we must take away the cause and the effects of our sin. And the problem is not purely that we commit sins. The ultimate problem is that we have a heart that is desired, is bent towards committing sin. This is where Jesus' sacrifice is so different, so much more complete than those sacrifices of the Old Testament because Jesus, the Son of God, is both fully God and fully man. He's like us in every way yet without sin. And out of his love for us sinners, rebels, enemies, imitators of the world, Christ willingly gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is not cosmic child abuse, Christ did so out of love. He did so willingly. And because he is fully God, his sacrifice is sufficient, not just to temporarily cover our sin, but to perfectly take away all our sin for all time. He made a once for all sacrifice for sin. Not just taking away the consequences of our sin or the guilt associated with our sin, but changing our hearts so that we no longer want to sin and live for him. He died in our place. He died for us, for our sin. His death was an atoning sacrifice to God. Our children's catechism asked the question, what is the atonement? Christ satisfying divine justice by his sufferings and death in the place of sinners. This sin-defeating death for sinners is the supreme display of his love for us. Because you realize you can't do more than that. What more could he do than what he has already done? So do you want to know that God loves you? Do you want to know that God is for you? Do you want to know that God has not abandoned you? Do you want to know that God has forgiven you and that God will not hold your sin against you? Do you want to know that there is hope for change, that you no longer have to be enslaved to your sins? Well, then look upon the sacrifice of Christ. A perfect sacrifice pleasing, fragrant aroma and sacrifice to God for us. He loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And it, it's because of what Christ has done, God's beloved, what he has done, that you can now 
be a beloved child of God. Friends, we need to marvel at that. We need to behold the wonder of that. It's when we look upon that, and this perfect sacrifice of Christ, this perfect display of God's love, that we will now desire to turn away from that futile desire to love and imitate the world and receive and rest in and hope in and trust in and find our identity in the fact that we are beloved children of God through the willing and loving sacrifice of Christ. Let that define you, not other things. Let that sweet-smelling savor permeate your soul. That's why Paul reminds us of this doctrine, of this truth, of this gospel, of this gloriously good news. God's love through Christ has given us new and everlasting life. It's only when we grasp that truth that we can live out of the commands of this text. You have got to get that. God's love for life, second, leads us to give our lives for love. These verses give us two commands, be imitators of God and to walk in love. But they are two commands, again, that flow out of who we are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you cannot do this. You cannot imitate what you do not have. You cannot love like something that you have no concept of. So we rest in this truth. We've got to get this. This is exactly what we've seen so far in the first four chapters of Ephesians. Chapter 1 through 3 tells us who we now are as a result of God's work for us in salvation. And then chapter 4 begins to talk about the ethical implications, the outworkings of that new identity that we now have in Christ. And so he says right there in chapter 4 verse 1, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have now been called. Okay, He's saying, live in your new identity. Be who you now are in Jesus Christ. This is not try to earn your way or to deserve somehow that calling that you've been given. He's saying, be who you now are. Live as the beloved. Live as those who have been sacrificed for. Establish yourself on the truth of the gospel. Employ the gifts that Christ has given each one of you in the church to build one another up towards maturity in Christ, towards living in Christ, living completely in light of who we now are in him. Our new lives in Christ are going to change the way we live. This is one of the many assurances that God gives us. And so beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is from the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not how you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him 
as the truth is in Jesus, to put off that old self. Stop imitating the world. That former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires and to renew your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. For as we were created in the image of God, all mankind was created in the image of God. We were meant to reflect his nature and his character to the world. That's part of what it means in Genesis 1 when it says that we were created in the image of God. We were meant to imitate God's character, to reflect that to the world. When sin entered into the world, it's because we desired to imitate things that we shouldn't. When you look at Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden, they sinned against God because they wanted to be like God in ways that they couldn't be like God. Right? They wanted to be all-wise. They wanted to be all-knowing. They wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to be in control. They wanted glory and majesty for themselves. So they bought into the lie. They were deceived. They gave themselves over to the corrupt desires, believing that they could live as if this is their world and they are God, and so they rebelled against God. Their sin was seeking to love and imitate something other than God. And as a result, Romans 1 tells us that all mankind now has the corrupting, deceitful desire to exchange the glory of God, the glory that we were meant to reflect, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We were meant to love and image and imitate God. But we've traded it for loving, imaging, and imitating the things that he's created. I don't think I need to get specific with that. We've all done it in a number of ways. But in Jesus, our purpose is restored. Just like we saw right there in Ephesians 4.24. Since we are now in Christ, we are to put off that old self that seeks to love and imitate other things. And we are to put on the new self, which has been recreated, which has been born again, which has been made new after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? We're seeing the image of God being restored through our union with Christ. He's not saying here, be imitators of God. Uh, when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, again, he's not saying, pretend to be something that you're not to earn something that you do not have. He's saying, because you are beloved children of God, imitate your father. Because this is who you are, live in light of that. Imitate the one who loves you. If you've spent any time with kids at all, you know that children seek to imitate their parents. Children do this because they love their parents and they know that their parents love them. And so they want to be like them. They want to be like them because of that 
love that they know that they have. They know who they are in relation to their parents. And so they put on your shoes and they clomp around the house. They want to sit in your chair. You know, like this is one of Will's thing. Will's two years old and like he loves to run ahead of me and he jumps in the seat where I'm going to seat. And then he's like, gets there and he smiles really and goes, get on my seat, get on my seat, get on my seat. Right? Because he just wants that. He wants to be like me. He wants to sit even where I sit. And he wants me to pay attention to the fact that he sat there and that I'll come around him and I'll grab him and I'll hold him and I'll love him and I'll tickle him and play with him. Children take on our mannerisms, our vocabulary, our tone. They want to crawl up into our laps. They want to do what we do. I still remember, like, uh, when I first met Caleb and Kelly, they showed me this video of Nella. And I don't even know if Nella was one at the time. But it was, Caleb was finishing up in seminary, right? So he was a seminary student, wrote a lot of papers and things like that. And this video is them kind of going into the room where Caleb had his desk where he writes his papers. And there's little Nella. And she's got this little metal thing with legs on it. I think it was like a like you used to do push-ups or something like that, but it was like this tall, you know, and that was her seat. And she put that down there and she had a wireless keyboard, right? And she put that down in front of her and she had a book in front, right? She had that book right in front of that keyboard and she would sit down there. And of course, you know, she could do that like, cause her, her, her reach actually went further than her toes, right? And she would just lean way over there and go, and she'd look at that book and she'd look down. And then she'd look up again and turn the pages and and she did that because she wanted to be like her dad. And it was, it was so cute. <laughs> um, you know, little boys think their dads are the best at everything. Little girls think that their moms are the most beautiful women in the world. And why? Because they love their parents. They love their parents because they know that they're loved. And they want to be like the ones that love them. If we don't get that we are beloved children of God, then we won't seek to imitate him out of love, but out of some false and futile effort to gain what we think that we don't have. We somehow have to earn his love. Or we'll have no motivation to be anything like him and we'll love and imitate other things because we think that they will give us what we want. But God loves us. He's shown his love for us. Christ died for sinners. He died for followers, for imitators, for lovers of the world. God loves us. How could we not love him for that? We imitate what we love. It's just a rule. We do. You want to understand what it is you love? Look at what you imitate. Look at what you follow. Look at what you're like. God is the only one we can imitate who perfectly loves us back. All the idols of our hearts, they don't love us. When you pursue love and imitation of the things of the world, they will never love you in return. They will not truly satisfy. 
They'll leave you longing. They'll leave you empty in the end. Not status, not wealth, not power, not image, not praise, not sex, not comfort, not pleasure, not personal success, not identity in clothing or music or even in our relationships. They will all fail. They will all fall short. They will not be able to truly satisfy us in the core of our being, the, the type of longing and love that we're looking for. So why then would we seek to imitate them? Why would we seek to love them? Why would we seek to put them first in our lives? Because it doesn't make sense. At the core of our love and imitation of the world, regardless of how that is specifically manifest in your lives, is a love for self. You know, I love myself and I want to display my love for myself in this way. And so I pursue that, right? I imitate, I follow, I serve, but I cannot get. Why? Because I am not God. I cannot satisfy my true longings through imitation, through pursuing loves that I want but do not have. It'll never work the end, you'll be just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Vanity. It's all vanity. Chasing after the wind. But what we cannot do, God can. Not as I seek to acquire fleeting and futile pleasures through imitations, but by receiving the soul satisfying love of God and by loving him because he first loved me. When I live in light of God's love for me in Christ, I want to follow. I want to imitate him. I want to be like him. I don't want to settle for some outward appearance, some veneer of godliness to put on some front towards people or some arbitrary personal or worldly standard that I would set for myself. I want to be like him. I'm defined by him. I want to pursue that. I want to be a man after God's own heart. And so I pursue that. And as I do, I live according to the purpose for which I was created to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. And I do it in my words, my thoughts, my affections, my attitudes, my actions. But friends, let's be clear on this. You cannot imitate what you don't have. It's only when you realize that you've received the love of Christ, that you are then able to turn as beloved children and imitate your Father. It's only when we live in light of God's love that our hearts will be changed. So like those dearly loved sons and daughters, we seek to imitate our dad. We were meant to reflect the glory of God with our lives. That's why We're given this call to imitate him. God's love for us as his beloved children is the reason, is the manner, is the enabling power, is the motivation for us to live for his glory rather than for our own. Because you are his beloved children, represent his family, be imitators of God. Now that's the first command. The second flows out of it. 
Because not only are we imitators of God, living in light of the love of God, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we are to walk in love. It's because Christ loved us and sacrificed himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God that we are called to let the manner of our lives, our walk, be defined by love towards others. And he's not talking about sentimental feelings. He's not talking about nice thoughts about other people, but a love that is like Christ. Love being an impartial, self-sacrificial commitment to act for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of response, reception, or reciprocity, right? That is to define not moments of our lives here or there, but the very pattern or manner by which we live. Let's not deceive ourselves here. If our love for others does not bring us to a place of service and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others, particularly for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then it's not love. It's self-love. We cannot love others if we put ourselves ahead of everyone else. If we love are to love like Christ, then it's Christ's love that has to define the very nature of love and what it means to love. And again, we've already established that the supreme display of God's love for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know how to love? Look at the cross. That means that love will be uncomfortable. That means that love will hurt. That love will suffer loss. That love will cause you pain. It means love will be rejected. Christ was rejected. He was spurned. They will even at times use your love against you. Love requires sacrifice. It will require your sweat, your tears, your energy, your resources, your blood. Love is not determined by your preferences, by your comforts, by your convenience, by your wants, by your feelings, by your status, by anything else. Your love must be defined by Christ. Your love is not given based upon how others might receive it or give it back to you. Because again, the reason, the manner, The enabling power, the motivation of our love is the love of Christ. A love that we already have received. A love that is without limits. A love that surpasses knowledge. A love that strengthens us and enables us to love each other through great cost and sacrifice. Jesus himself said in John 13... Verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we could go into detail about how this could work out, how this could play specifically in different areas of our lives, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave that to the Holy Spirit bringing about conviction of heart in your minds. I'm trusting 
as you walk out of here, this truth will come to bear specifically in areas of your life. But let me ask you some questions. Can people see the sacrifice of Christ in the way you love others? Can people tell by the way that you relate to others around you that you love God and you belong to him as his beloved child? Can others tell by your love that you are a disciple of Christ? If so, then praise the Lord. Continue to love like that. Do not give up. Do not grow weary in loving that way. But if not, and at times this will be all of us, maybe you're here right now and this is you, the answer then is not for you to simply try to do better. I'm just going to pull it up on my bootstraps. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to choke it down and I'm going to love. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to do it. The answer is to go back and learn what it means to be a beloved child of God. It's to sit and ponder that. It's to go back and look upon the sacrifice of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's to go back and pray this prayer from Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Pray that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, that's my prayer for us this morning, that we might grasp that. God's love has given us life. Let us give our lives then for love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, help us to not leave that as words or as abstract ideas, but that our hearts and minds would be filled with the overwhelming joy that comes with knowing that we are your beloved children. And through the sacrifice of Christ, atonement has been made. We have been more than forgiven. We are now your children. You love us. You will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have failed to live in light of that love by imitating your character and by walking in love. But Lord, let us not focus on the command. Let us focus on the truth of who we are in Christ and live in light of that. Lord, you deserve all glory and praise. You loved us. You are lovely. Open our eyes to see it. We can pray no more than that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.